ASIP, the voice of interventional pain management. The ASIP podcast is sponsored by Medtronic, your partner in personalized pain solutions for patients with musculoskeletal pain, cancer pain, severe spasticity, or chronic pain. To learn more about Medtronic solutions, call 888-638-7627 or visit back.com. The ASIP podcast is also sponsored by Boston Scientific. In a registry of 800 patients, 72% of patients used multiple waveforms when given the option. Boston Scientific's Precision Spectra SCS system offers customized pain relief, delivering multiple waveforms to a precise neural target. You want options? Boston Scientific delivers. Hello and welcome to the January 2017 edition of the ASIP podcast. This is Tom Prigge of the ASIP staff and on this podcast we'll hear from Dr. Robert Wachter, one of the keynote speakers at our upcoming annual meeting. In the news segment we'll hear about newborns addicted to opioids, what part of the brain affects the placebo effect, a potential answer for diabetic neuropathy, and much more. And we'll wrap things up with a study that claims that how much you drive affects how much you weigh. The ASIP podcast is sponsored in part by St. Jude Medical, makers of spinal cord stimulation and radiofrequency therapy products. Visit them at professional.sjm.com. And by Stimwave, maker of the Freedom Spinal Cord Stimulation System. Find out more about the Freedom Spinal Cord System at www.stimwave.com. Well, we have a number of keynote speakers lined up for our annual meeting, which will be held April 20th through the 22nd in Las Vegas at Caesars Palace. One of them is Robert Wachter, MD. Now, Dr. Wachter is at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine, and he is credited with coining the term hospitalist and is considered the father of the hospitalist field. He's written a number of books, and his latest book is also the title of the talk that he will give at the annual meeting. And that title is The Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, and Harm at the Dawn of Medicine's Computer Age. I'm going to play a pre-recorded video interview Dr. Wachter did about his book. Now, since the questions only appeared in writing on the television screen, I'll be reading them so that you have some context for what Dr. Wachter is talking about. So, let's get started. Dr. Wachter, why did you write The Digital Doctor? I decided to write this book because I'm a practicing physician and I study patient safety and medical mistakes. And uh, over the last 10 or 15 years, I think it was natural for me and my colleagues to just wait for computers to enter our world and solve so many of our problems. And I think part of the issue was, you know, our iPhones have solved so many of our problems in the rest of our lives, and they're so magical. We had this belief that computerization and healthcare would be similarly straightforward. And yet, when the computers did enter our world, uh, things didn't quite work out that way. We found that the notes, the doctor's notes, were bloated and almost sometimes indecipherable. We found the doctors and patients weren't looking each other in the eye anymore. The doctors had their heads down in the computer, and patients certainly noticed it. 
And then about two years ago at UCSF, where I work, we gave a kid a 39-fold overdose of a common antibiotic. And as I sat there at the meeting where we were discussing it, I said, boy, this is so different than what we expected and what we'd hoped for, and somebody needs to understand it and write about it, and that's why I decided to write the book. You have identified the problems with digital healthcare. What is the fix? I think there are two key fixes to the problems that are emerging in digital healthcare. The first relates to this issue of user-centered design, which is up until now, the computer vendors, the people making the healthcare computer systems, have not sufficiently brought in doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and patients into the design process. And I came to deeply understand how important that is. In researching my book, I spent a day at Boeing headquarters and was privileged to meet with the folks who developed the cockpits of the Boeing commercial jetliners. And those folks would not dream of greenlighting a plane, of sending it out to be used in, in the commercial market until they had spent thousands of hours watching pilots actually fly the mock-ups of the plane. These are very smart engineers, but they know that unless they watch the pilots use their systems, they won't understand that this thing that seemed like a really good idea on the drawing board, it just doesn't work the way we anticipated. That kind of user-centered design, bringing the frontline users into the process, has not happened sufficiently in healthcare. The second fix that I think is really important is trying to figure out the appropriate role of government. Government has had a unique and interesting role in the history of healthcare IT. It was $30 billion of federal funding over the last several years that got us finally to go digital. It wasn't happening naturally, and the reason that we now are up to 70 or 80% computer adoption is because of government funding. But with that funding came pretty exuberant government regulations, with the governments getting very deeply into the weeds trying to prescribe what the fonts look like and what the screens look like. And just imagine if the government tried to do that for your desktop or your smartphone. I think enough said. We don't want that. I think the model for the government here is that of the early days of the Internet, where the government was extraordinarily involved in the development of the Internet. But once the Internet was up and running, the government pulled back a tremendous amount. And the Internet is really managed privately and by nonprofit organizations. I think the government has a key role in healthcare technology, but the role really is in privacy, in security, and in getting all of the computer systems to talk to each other. That's incredibly important, but beyond that, it's time for government to pull back quite a bit. Why do you think people will want to read this book? This is one of those issues. You get a bunch of doctors together and you say to one of them, you know, tell me, how's it going with your computer? And you have pushed a hot button and <laughs> you'll have a hard time getting people to be quiet about this. Uh, everybody is exercised about it and flabbergasted by how difficult this has been. Uh, but I also wrote it in a way uh, to, to try to speak to patients, and the early feedback I've gotten from patients has been extraordinarily positive and gratifying. Uh, I think it does, and, and, and I think it's of great interest to patients. Uh, first of all, it's an incredibly interesting story. There are vivid characters, incredibly interesting companies, and this is about the digital transformation of arguably the most important industry that we have, the healthcare industry. Uh, the second reason I think it's interesting to patients uh, is that patients are wondering what's going on. Patients come in and see their doctor, and they see their doctor cursing out their computer, or they see their doctor with his, head or, his or her head down in the computer, not looking at them in the eye anymore, and they're wondering, what is going on here? And I think it creates, will create some positive conversations between patients and, and, their, and their clinicians. Uh, the third is probably the most important reason, and that is that uh, it's easy to think that a book about computerization is about the technology. And of course it is a little bit, but 
It's also now about the way your heart attack is diagnosed or you are told that you do or you don't have cancer or you tell us whether you do or you don't want to be resuscitated if you're very ill. I think starting now and lasting until forever, this is the way your health care will be managed. And uh, so this really matters deeply to patients. It's the, the world of healthcare has transformed from the business that I grew up in and that I was trained to practice in when I went to medical school, which was an analog business, to a completely different industry, digital healthcare. And that matters deeply to patients because it's really about how your healthcare and how your health is managed. Do you think digital will replace doctors? The question of whether computers will take over for doctors uh, comes up all the time, and there are people out there making that argument. I can tell you it bugs doctors quite a bit, as it would bug all of you if you spent 10 years training for something and then your, your work was being taken over by a chip. That, that doesn't feel good. Uh, I think we have to be open and honest about it and say there are parts of what a doctor does today that computers not only will take over, but they should take over. Why should I have to try to remember what medicine you're allergic to or that these two medicines out of 10,000 might interact with each other or what the appropriate algorithm to treat high cholesterol is? These are things that can be programmed into a computer. And I think if a computer takes over for the doctors, the, we'll do better. I think we'll provide better, more reliable care. I think that's terrific. There are other areas where the computers, I think, can be extraordinarily helpful in giving the doctor and the patient enough data to frame a decision. Uh, but at the end of the day, these are judgment calls, and I think the decision should still be made by human beings, talking to each other, understanding each other's values and points of view. But there's no question that computers can help frame those issues and provide important information. The part I worry about the most relates to the human connection and empathy. I think when someone goes to uh, plan a trip or buy a book or go out to, and figure out where they're going for dinner, those are quite transactional and computers can take over that and people say, that's fine. But when you come to see me because you're having chest pain or belly pain or worried that you have cancer, that relationship doesn't feel transactional. It feels deeply human and deeply moral. And I think you want a doctor on the other end of that conversation, someone who understands your values, understands your anxiety, listens to you, takes full advantage of all the tools, including the technology, but interacts with you as one human being uh, talking to another human being. And I think if we lose that, if the computers sort of force that out of the system, I think we have, will have lost something extraordinarily important and, and, uh, and it would be a terrible shame. With all the shortcomings of digital healthcare today, do you have any optimism? When I started writing the book, I have to tell you, I, I started out when I thought about digital healthcare, I was pessimistic. What I was seeing was not good, was disappointing. And there was a part of me that was kind of angry. And I finished the process of writing the book and the process of interviewing about 100 people much more optimistic than I came into it, which was nice. I, I, I wondered not just how the book would end up, but how I would end up at the end of the process. And I came out of it pretty optimistic. The other thing that made me optimistic was when I interviewed these 100 people, they had very different answers to certain key questions like, will technology take over for doctors or has government intervention been good or bad? But then when I asked them, what does this look like when the dust settles? Almost everybody gave me the same answer. And the answer is a really wonderful, hopeful answer. It's patients taking care of themselves with new apps and, and talking to their doctor through telemedicine. It's using big data in a way that gets past all the early hype and uses it to understand better ways of treating cancer or managing, uh, managing heart disease. 
And I came to realize that we are going to end up in that place. The key question is how fast, it, how long it takes to get there. And I think those are related to the choices we make. Part of what the book is about is what are those choices? If we make good choices, I think we end up in a really terrific place in a matter of five years, seven years. I think if we make bad choices, and we're making some bad ones now, unless we turn some of those ships around, I think we're looking at more 15, 20, 25 years. And that's a lot of bad things and a lot of people that will die that don't need to if we make the right choices. Thank you to Dr. Robert Wachter for giving us a taste of what you will hear from him at our annual meeting, April 20th through the 22nd in Las Vegas. Dr. Wachter's lecture is the same as the title of his book, The Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, and Harm at the Dawn of Medicine's Computer Age. It's time for the news portion of the podcast, where we take a look at some pain-related news that you might have missed. Transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation, or TENS, can reduce pain during an office-performed hysterectomy without sedation. That's the conclusion of a study published in the journal Obstetrics and Gynecology. Researchers in Spain randomized 138 women to three groups, TENS, sham tens or a control group in the tens group two electrodes were placed parallel to the spinal cord at the t10 to l1 levels and the s2 to s4 levels the tens group had the lowest visual analog scale scores and the highest satisfaction scores many pain sensing nerves in the body are thought to respond to all types of painful stimuli but University College London research in mice reveals that, in fact, most nerves are actually specialized to respond to specific types of pain, such as heat, cold, or mechanical pain. The study, published in Science Advances, found that over 85% of pain-sensing neurons in whole organisms are sensitive to one specific type of painful stimulus. And this new finding could enable scientists to develop new, specific painkillers for different pain conditions. The team used a form of fluorescent activity-dependent imaging where pain-sensing neurons in mice were genetically marked to emit a fluorescent glow when activated. The mice were briefly exposed to either a small pinch, cold water, or hot water stimulus on one of their paws to see which neurons were activated. The results showed that over 85% of pain-sensing neurons were specific to one type of pain and did not react to others. According to senior author Professor John Wood, quote, Our next step is to look at animal models for specific chronic pain conditions to see which neuron cells are activated. We hope to identify the different neurons through which chronic pain can develop so that focused treatments can be developed. The number of babies born with drug withdrawal symptoms from opioids grew substantially faster in rural communities than in cities, a new study suggests. Newborns exposed to opioids in the womb and who experienced withdrawal symptoms after birth 
known as neonatal abstinence syndrome, are more likely to have seizures, low birth weight, and problems with breathing, sleeping, and feeding. The study was published in JAMA Pediatrics. The researchers found that in rural areas, the rate of newborns diagnosed with neonatal abstinence syndrome increased from nearly one case per thousand births from 2003 through 2004 to 7.5 cases per thousand births from 2012 to 2013. Now that's a surge nearly 80% higher than the growth rate of such cases in urban communities. Using national data, researchers found that between 2012 and 2013, rural infants accounted for over 21% of all infants born with neonatal abstinence syndrome, which is a large spike from 2003 when rural infants made up only 13% of the neonatal abstinence syndrome cases in the United States. Scientists have identified the region in the brain responsible for the placebo effect in pain relief. The research comes from the Northwestern Medicine and Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago. Pinpointing the sweet spot of the pain-killing placebo effect could result in the design of more personalized medicine for those with chronic pain. The functional MRI technology developed for the study could lead to individualized pain therapy by enabling targeted pain medication based on how an individual's brain responds to a drug. The finding also will lead to more precise and accurate clinical trials for pain medications by eliminating individuals with high placebo response before the trials are even undertaken. Now, the scientists discovered a unique brain region within the midfrontal gyrus that identifies placebo pill responders. The study was published in PLOS Biology. According to Vanya Apkarian, a professor of physiology at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine and one of the study's co-authors, quote, The new technology will allow physicians to see what part of the brain is activated during an individual's pain and choose the specific drug to target this spot. A pilot study by researchers at the Mayo Clinic has found that patients suffering from pain related to irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS, may benefit from taking pregabalin, better known as Lyrica, which is commonly used to treat fibromyalgia. Now, the results of the study were presented at the annual meeting of the American College of Gastroenterology. Study author Dr. Yuri Sato-Loftus and colleagues followed 85 patients with IBS reported high levels of abdominal pain. These patients ranged in age from 18 to 70 years. The placebo-controlled study lasted 12 weeks. Patients who received pregabalin reported significant improvement in pain management compared to those who received a placebo. Preliminary data also showed improvement in other IBS symptoms, including bloating and diarrhea. An over-the-counter supplement, coenzyme Q10, better known as CoQ10, has been shown to be associated with improving fibromyalgia symptoms. An online letter to the editor in the journal CNS Neuroscience and Therapeutics reported a small study of just 20 patients with fibromyalgia who were randomized to receive CoQ10 or placebo for 40 days. CoQ10 group had molecular changes including mitochondrial biogenesis and antioxidant gene expression and a reduction in inflammation. 
They also scored higher on a number of clinical symptom measurements. The letter writers called for a double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trial to confirm their findings. A team of scientists believe they have found the answer to diabetic neuropathy. Their findings were published in the journal Nature Neuroscience. The team identified and successfully tested a molecule that inhibits the function of a protein that turns touch receptors into pain receptors under the skin. Now, so far, their research has been conducted on mice. The protein in question is called STOML3, STOML3. This protein is required for receptor function via channels at sensory endings in the skin. When it is blocked, pain is blocked, but non-pain-related touch sensitivity is not affected. Well, we always try to have a medical marijuana story each month on the podcast, so here's this month's. Have you heard of cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome? It can affect long-term heavy marijuana users with chronic vomiting and abdominal pain. The syndrome has doubled in Colorado as access to legal marijuana has become widespread, according to Dr. Kenan Hurd. Dr. Hurd is the chief of medical toxicology at the University of Colorado's Anschutz Medical Campus. Uh, emergency departments in the state see the syndrome on a regular basis, some departments even seeing it daily. Typical sufferers of the syndrome use marijuana every day and have been doing so for at least six months. The only known cure is to stop using marijuana. Within a week, symptoms disappear. Hot showers seem to help ease symptoms in acute episodes. The ACIP podcast is sponsored by Boston Scientific. In a registry of 800 patients, 72% of patients used multiple waveforms when given the option. Boston Scientific's Precision Spectra SCS system offers customized pain relief, delivering multiple waveforms to a precise neural target. You want options? Boston Scientific delivers. The ACIP podcast is also sponsored by Medtronic, your partner in personalized pain solutions for patients with musculoskeletal pain, cancer pain, severe spasticity, or chronic pain. To learn more about Medtronic Solutions, call 888-638-7627 or visit back.com. The ACIP Podcast is also sponsored in part by St. Jude Medical, makers of spinal cord stimulation and radiofrequency therapy products. Visit them at professional.sjm.com and by Stimwave, maker of the Freedom Spinal Cord Stimulation System. Find out more about the Freedom Spinal Cord System at www.stimwave.com. Well, we conclude this podcast with a study that tells us that one hour of driving a day can make you way more. It seems as though people who drive an hour or more a day are 2.3 kilograms heavier and 1.5 centimeters wider around the waist compared to people who spend 15 minutes or less in their cars. Now, these findings come from a research study led by Professor Takimi Sukiyama from the Australian Catholic University's Institute of Health and Aging. According to the study, men are more likely than women to put on weight due to time spent behind the wheel. Their findings were published in the journal Preventive Medicine. Uh, 
Now, the study assessed the driving habits of 2,800 adults from the Australian Diabetes, Obesity, and Lifestyle Study against health measures including body mass index, or BMI, uh, waist circumference, fasting plasma glucose, and a range of cardiometabolic risk factors. The study found, relative to participants who spent 15 minutes a day or less in cars, those who spent more than one hour a day, about a quarter of the sample, were likely to have a 0.8 greater BMI, which is equivalent to 2.3 kilograms for a person with a height of 1.7 meters and 1.5 centimeter greater waist circumference. I guess the takeaway is if you can walk to work or ride a bike, maybe you should do so. Well, that wraps up this month's podcast. I'd like to hear from you. Send me an email at tom at asip.org, A-S-I-P-P dot org. This is Tom Priggy. Thanks for listening, and please join me next month for another ASIP podcast. <music>